Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Close your eyes and you will see clearly. Cease to listen and you will hear truth. Be silent and your heart will sing. Seek no contacts and you will find union. Be still and you will move forward to the tide of your spirit. Be gentle and you will need no strength. Be patient and you will achieve all things and be humble and you will remain entire. Taos contemplation. Today... As Leonard Perlmeyer, with his mutter, let me say that really clearly, Leonard Perlmutter, with Jenis Cortez Perlmutter, uh, amazing authors of the book, The Heart of the Science of Yoga, they are going to join us. I believe that they're trying to get through at this moment. And The Heart of the Science of Yoga is like this manualist book. It's, it's a guru in and of itself because all of its pages, all 500 plus of its pages, Each page offers this meditative aha, this experience of yourself, of the world, the universe around you, of God, of spirit, of yoga, the practice of enlightenment, of the peacefulness that you search for as well as the power that you know you need to walk this planet and this experience. It's embedded in this this amazing book. As I read each book has to to be able to adequately and authentically interview each author, I recognize that you can't just read through this book. I mean, you can, but every page stops me in this aha, this experience of meditation, this experience of enlightenment. And as um, Leonard Perlmutter and Janice Cortez Perlmutter do mutter, they explain very clearly that everything is our guru, every single thing. And I believe that this book, The Heart and the Science of Yoga, is one of our gurus. And joining us today is Leonard Perlmutter. As you've joined us today, yes, hello. Hello, how are you? I am wonderful. Well, I hope you've been able to hear a bit of the introduction I've already given you. And is Janice able to join us today? She is not available. She's working on a deadline in, in the uh, studio. Uh, she's a painter. That's wonderful. I, yes, I, I, one of your wonderful stories is the white horse. How about if sure. you start the story with the white horse, since we are talking uh, in absentee about Janice's wonderful work and the way that taught you so much. Introduce us to you through the story of the white horse. Okay, well, uh, it's a great story. It's a great teaching. Uh, It has continued to inspire us every day. Uh, Years ago, uh, back in, I guess it was 1994, uh, we were contemplating uh, traveling to India for the first time to uh, study with our teacher, Swami Rama of the Himalayas, it was at a time when uh, he was dying, and we knew that uh, he would be passing soon. Uh, 
there would be an opportunity to uh, thank him for the teachings that he had presented to us, wish him a bon voyage, and it would have been a an opportunity for us to face uh, uh, our fears and our reservations about traveling halfway around the world, uh, spending money that uh, we didn't feel comfortable spending because we didn't have that much money in the bank at the time, and was going to be occasioned also by traveling uh, high into the Himalayas on little donkeys uh, through these very narrow pathways that dropped off seemingly into eternity. And uh, Janice and I deliberated for for literally uh, weeks on end, should we go, should we not go? And finally, uh, the date when we had to make a reservation uh, approached, we both woke up and decided that we would go. We made that decision. I wrote the check, mailed it, and we were pretty quiet uh, that morning and into the early afternoon. Uh, we were in silence, actually, uh, with our mantra, uh, just in case the, the ego would uh, uh, orchestrate a uh, guerrilla warfare attack uh, against us and try to undercut our resolve. And at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, I received a phone call, and uh, it was from uh, a collector that uh, we had worked with uh, for several years in Florida, he owned thoroughbred horses, and he called to commission Janice to uh, to do a a painting. I might add that we were going to India to study with our teacher a sacred scripture called the Shwedashwatara Upanishad. Uh, in Sanskrit, the Shwedashwatara uh, represents the whitest horse. And that uh, metaphor, that metaphor is is often used uh, to represent an individual man or woman who purifies his or her own mind of all uh, limitations, all fears, all anger, all selfish desires. And the the white horse represents that accomplishment. And uh, I was talking uh, to uh, this collector from Florida, and he was telling me where the horse was stabled and who was the farm manager and what was his telephone number and what would be a, a good time to uh, to visit uh, during the, the year and how to uh, access all the, the information so that Janice could uh, do some sketching and I could take some photographs in preparation for the uh, the commission to be painted. And as I was listening, uh, and and uh, the collector c- concluded, I said, would you like to speak to Janice? Uh, because she's in the studio, and I'm sure that she'd like to uh, speak with you. He said, no, that's not necessary, but I, I would like you to pass something on to her. He said that, uh, he reminded me that he was in the uh, horse business, the horse industry, for approximately 20 or 25 years. And over all those years, this horse that he was commissioning the portrait for was the whitest horse he had ever seen. 
Mm. And so it was so poetic because the commission for this whitest horse was going to pay to the penny the amount that we had just wrote the check for that morning for $5,000 to go to visit Swami Rama to study with him the whitest horse scripture. Hmm. So the the point hmm. is that uh, when when we can serve our inner wisdom to do what's to be done or not do what's not to be done, the universe supports us in those kinds of choices. Now, that this is a dramatic uh, example. Uh, many examples are very subtle. But the more that you base your outer action on your inner wisdom, the more that you create a bridge of yoga that accesses inner wisdom to become the basis of our thoughts, words, and deeds, uh, we're taken care of physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That was our experience, and it's an inspiration even today. Uh, it is a beautiful introduction as to who the two of you are. And once again, folks, we're listening to the author, one of two, Leonard Perlmutter of the Heart and Science of Yoga. And you can, of course, get this on the Internet. Just briefly, how can they access your book otherwise besides just looking, searching for it? Well, the American Meditation Institute, which we founded uh, in 1996, uh, would be the place. Uh, the address, the website is AmericanMeditation.org, AmericanMeditation.org. But they can find it also on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or all fine booksellers nationwide. I'm going to go to another chapter and. Leonard, you and I have not had a chance to talk or utter one word between the two of us. But I am going to give you the challenges of the world as I see it and as I know my listeners see it. And sure. one of the challenges is as we live in many worlds, you mentioned in your book that we actually are citizens of two worlds. And I contemplated that thinking I probably um, a citizen of many worlds, and I understand that I'm thinking of it differently than you, and I'm looking forward to you elucidating us more on that. But as I think about the many worlds that I'm in, sometimes I need to be a warrior. Sometimes I need to be gentle. Sometimes I need to be aggressive. Sometimes I need to be silent, and sometimes I need to be vocal. And I could go on and on with the various things that I feel the worlds I live in uh, summons me to be in order to optimize the moment. And I am going to quote from the Hasidic tale of your chapter 20. A man asked a spiritual teacher, do you mean we should remember the Lord even in the give and take of business? Yes, of course, the rabbi replied. If we can remember business matters in the hour of prayer, shouldn't we be able to remember God and transactions of our business? And so can you walk us, Leonard Perlmutter, into our day, no matter when people are listening to this, they are living a moment in their day to be followed by many moments, all of which are gurus, so to speak. Those moments are our teachers. How do we, how do we walk those moments in so many demands of who we need to be to face us? Well, you, you paint a very accurate picture. Human beings are very complicated, <laughs> We have lots of relationships. We have lots of duties and responsibilities, lots of demands. And you're right, we, 
each of us wears many hats uh, during uh, a 24-hour period. I'll answer your question with with uh, a bit of a uh, autobiographical uh, story. Uh, it was, I think, it was probably in the uh, just about 1980, 1981. Uh, Jenison and and my uh, practice had deepened substantially we were we were really studying and practicing yoga science and 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 meditating and and uh, trying as best as possible to uh, that bridge of yoga in our lives to base outer action on inner wisdom and uh we still to this day we we make a living uh, by selling genesis paintings I, professionally i'm i'm an art dealer in addition to being a teacher <laughs> Uh, and yeah, and uh, we went to, to California to see a colleague and, and a teacher that we respected greatly uh, up in uh, the San Francisco area, Petaluma, at uh, Ishwaran. And I said to him uh, uh, back then, I said, Ishwaran, you know, I love this teaching so much. Uh, it's so practical and commonsensical, and and it just makes you feel better physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, I said, but, you know, I'm self-employed. I sell paintings for a living. You know, it's not like selling toothbrushes uh, uh, or uh, uh, paper uh, napkins. Uh, It's not a necessity for most people. And so as being self-employed, I have to deal with a lot of fear. Uh, We don't know one week or one month from the next, whether we're going to have any money coming in, whether we're going to be able to sell any of these paintings. And yet every day the bills come in. So being self-employed, I I have to deal with a lot of fear. I said to him, I I, I think that uh, this type of philosophy would be better suited for people who work for the government. They have a check coming in every week. They have health insurance. They, They probably have a pension. Then, with all those securities they can uh, then uh, take to uh, meditation and yoga science. And he looked at me, and I can still see the twinkle in his eye. It was sort of like I I, I was lobbing a softball <laughs> to him in the batter's mm-hmm. box because uh, he, he just looked at me with that little smile, and he said, well, your problem, Leonard, is that you consider yourself self-employed. He said, I'm employed by the self and and don't you know a light went on in in my mind yes wow. i could become employed by the self i can become an employee of my own inner wisdom of my higher self this personality mm-hmm. who is habituated to fear and judgment and anger and selfish desires i know how to become employed by the higher self i know that i have a conscience this buddhi one of the four major functions of the mind that can reflect mm. wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind that can tell me 24/7 the thought to think the word to speak and the action to take that's always going to take care of me and so that gave me the confidence and the impetus to do just that to give up that concept in my unconscious mind that I was self-employed no I myself was an employee. I was an employee of the higher self. And 
it yes. has enabled me to deal with uh, all these strong emotional ties that have limited me mm. earlier in my life. Mm. So you in know, all these situations about... where oh, all these <laughs> demands are being made on us, everything turns into service. We have to remember that every relationship is actually the consequence of a previous action. It's the consequence of a previous action that is bringing today a situation, a scenario, a relationship that is requiring us to act skillfully. And in order for us to act skillfully, we have to examine the unconscious mind and let go of any obstacles that would inhibit us from acting skillfully, basing our outer action on our inner wisdom. And so in that process, what I am doing continuously from morning to night with all the different hats that I'm being asked to wear is simply show up in the intersection of that relationship and base my outer actions on my own inner wisdom and be of service through mind, action, and speech, knowing that the consequence that develops is going to enable me to fulfill the purpose of my life without pain, without misery, and without bondage. Mm. Beautifully said. And now tangential to that is human power, divine power. I feel that one of the reasons we have such strange power in place in our world and in our current I'm not the least bit shy about saying I think we have very strange powers right now that are governing us. And I, I'm vastly concerned, and I think that it reflects that as a citizen of the United States, too many of us feel very powerless. And so we put strange powers in place. And so to address that sense of power, the energy of power, the attitude of power, the faith of power, the actions of power, is there not a yoga associated to the empowerment of our ability to make our lives to go from to go into the growth from the subtle because we understand so much of the power of the subtle? Well, having introduced it that way, Leonard, where do you go with this idea? You know, the the gross manifested world and the relationships that we have with the objects and relationships of the material world, these are all of our own consciousness. So in certain situations where individuals feel powerless and that there are quote-unquote strange powers governing us, that is all a reflection on the chessboard of actions that we have taken in the subtle world. Let me explain this by a little experiment. Uh, okay. And, and you can participate, Carol, and, and I'll ask uh, your listeners as well. Uh, the, the experiment is a two-part experiment. First, I'd like to ask you to raise your right hand over your head and then bring it down again. Okay. Go ahead. Just do that. All right. Yes. Done. And that's doable, yes. right? You, you, you could do that. Okay. Now, part B of the yoga experiment, I'd like you to do the exact same thing that you just did. I'd like you to raise your right hand over your head and then bring it back down again. But there can be no thinking. 
see if you can raise your right hand over your head and bring it down without entertaining any thoughts. Go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, all right. No, I can't. I mean, even okay. even if I put it into automatic mode, it's going to have some sort no, of initiation right. on my part. That's right. That's right. So, so this is very powerful. The mind moves first. The body follows. Okay? So right now we're experiencing challenges in our lives. This is the consequence of previous thoughts that led to previous words, that led to previous actions that bring about consequences. This is what Newton referred to as his third law of motion. Uh, yoga science refers to it as the law of karma. That thought leads to action, and action leads to consequence. So we already know the consequence that we want to experience. Mm-hmm. We want to have enough power so that we can we can experience happiness, that we can experience health, so that we can experience security, so that we can experience loving, nurturing relationships. So the mm-hmm. question becomes, how are we going to get to point B from point A? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know that some people subscribe to uh, the notion that, well, gee, if you if you get the lottery and you hit hit it big, uh, that that'll get you point B. But you know that's that's a false <laughs> promise. We all know that that's a false promise. So if if I were going to uh, start a business, as an example, uh, what would I do? Well, uh, first thing I would do is I would I would write a business plan. And then I would speak to a couple of bankers to see if I can get some financing. And uh, I might even uh, write a little survey and, and have people answer some questions to see if, uh, if they want my service, if they want my product. And that would all be very prudent. So each of us wants this power to bring happiness and health and security into our lives, loving, nurturing, creative relationships. So the question becomes, do I have a business plan? Do I have a philosophy of life that is going to enhance my capacity to get to point B from point A? And for most of us, the answer is no. No. Uh, The only thing that we learn in schools, colleges, and universities to enhance those capacities is we receive knowledge and we assimilate knowledge. And if we're a good student, we memorize, we can take tests on that knowledge, we get a degree, and that's the end of our education. Because at that point, with that degree, with that skill, we can make a living. But does that necessarily equate with happiness and health and security? No. So we need a philosophy of life, and that's what yoga science does. And it doesn't doesn't mean that you have to uh, use the word yoga. You can use Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism. We can build a bridge on, uh, by, and, and call any philosophy of life by whatever name is most familiar and comfortable. But everybody needs to build a bridge in life, a philosophical, scientific, metaphoric bridge that connects our outer actions to our own inner wisdom. And the more that we do that, the more we're led to the happiness and the health and the security we desire. And we do that, Carol, through using our buddy, our conscience, what early Christians referred to as Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Human beings, unlike every other animal, have a conscience. The conscience acts as a mirror. 
and and the conscience can reflect wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind. That's not just a metaphor. The superconscious portion of the mind lies beyond the conscious. It lies beyond the unconscious. It's the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations. Paul McCartney uh, hears beautiful melodies. And so the more that we base our outer action on our inner wisdom using our conscience in thought, word, and deed, we purify our own consciousness. And it just so happens that same consciousness that is within me is within you, Carol. It's within every human being. It's the core of our personality, which is constantly changing. So at a certain point, a tipping point comes where we begin to change the appearance on the chessboard. So politicians, you see, politicians just reflect the collective consciousness of humanity. So if you change the collective consciousness of yourself, by definition, you change the collective consciousness of the planet, because there's only one consciousness. So if if people are in power that are governing us and, and bringing to us a feeling of powerlessness, then then this is an inspiration for me to go into my life in the constellation of relationships that I have, using my conscience to become the change that I seek. And every relationship is a means. What is is the power we have as we do our meditations and our mudras and our mantras? And what is the power that we have to have impact on the consciousness of others uh, I'm not talking, well, I am. I'm talking about how uh, Madison Avenue influences our consciousness and to buy, to consume. Why does things. Madison Avenue influence us? Why do, the, why do politicians in Washington influence us? Because we are influenceable, you see. So, we are influenceable. Yeah. We we have we have bought a concept that is sold by the culture that we don't have the answer that there are experts outside of us that have the answer. It's not true. It's a false concept. We all have false concepts in in our unconscious mind stored. Yes, we have all learned that one plus two is three, but we have also had teachers that taught us that one plus two is four. And we were so vulnerable and so impressionable at a young age that we believed it. And, and I, too, <clears throat> have that, that, uh, that concept that is patently false stored in my unconscious mind. And in certain kinds of situations, when my emotional buttons are pushed in certain kinds of relationships, I rely on that faulty concept that one plus two is four. And don't you know, every time I use that concept in a relationship, I hurt myself. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, I feel pain. So the pain is a messenger. It's telling me, tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, you need to make a mid-course correction. You can't keep on doing the same things all the time, relying on that old concept that's not working for you. You've got to get rid of it. Meditation does that. 
Meditation does something that nothing else does. It helps us to re-engineer the software of the mind. It transforms our fear and our anger and our selfish desires into strategic reserves of, of an expansive, creative, positive power, an increase in our willpower, and an increase in our superconscious wisdom. That's very powerful. Yes. We can affect the chessboard. So if we can affect the chessboard, then therefore, and we, since we are one, can we affect the consciousness of another uh, in the same way Madison and Wall Street and politicians? Can we affect the consciousness of another in a way where love and wisdom and uh, uh, peacefulness and compassion, humanity, humaneness, Rain, can we influence the consciousness of others? Well, what is Jesus speaking as the Christ uh, say? What does he say? He says, look, Leonard, take that log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So our job is simply, and, and, and that, that, that's the beauty of yoga. It, it, it's really a, an inside job. We have no claim to the outcome. But we do know that the more that our outer actions reflect our inner wisdom, we will get what we need. That's the promise. That's the hypothesis of this science. If you do what has to be done, when it has to be done, you will receive what you need. Now, if that means that uh, another person can hear that message, see it, and then get it and employ it, that's great. But if not, that's got to be okay, too. We have to be alike in praise and blame, good and bad. You know, Shakespeare had it right. You know, there is no good, there is no bad. It's just, you know, thinking makes it so. We have to be okay with whatever is and just be of service rather than drain our energy by being concerned about somebody who's not doing something like I'm I'm doing or how I want them to act. <laughs> well, I hate to say it, Leonard Perlmutter, we are talking to, by the way, the wonderful, one of two wonderful authors of The Heart and Science of Yoga. It's from the American Meditation Institute, where you can order it at AmericanMeditationInstitute.com. And the subtitle is Empowering Self-Care Program for Happy, Healthy, and Joyful Life. You know what I was about to say, Leonard, is that you're actually talking to an activist. And so an act, as an activist, I, I cannot only sit in the development of my own consciousness. Um, I, am an, I, I am an influencer. I believe that there are some of us that are influencers and some of us that are, are bound for other sort of activities, that we're all activists in certain ways. And in your book, I found myself looking for where is a space for the activist that goes out and is a change agent? Because I find so many times the wonderful work of meditation, yoga, and so forth and so on, for me and the gurus, the teachers, the yoga masters that I have uh, worked with a little bit here and there, spot there, spot here, that there is more of an urge to have that internal change and less of an urge to create the activist 
the influencer. And as a consequence, I find that people become marks or they become uh, victims of people who are influencers that are the activists. And I'm, I, I tell you, I'm, I hate to say this phrase, but I'm hell-bent <laughs> towards seeing the yoga of the activists, that, that as an influencer, the beauty of this amazing lifestyle cannot be passive um, because it is now the time when there's such hunger, starvation, and no and blinders, complete blinders because of the miserableness of lives or because anger is now the mantra of power. So how Can do I you ask deal you a question? with people? Yes, I'd like, love you to deal with this. <laughs> okay. Because I know so let me ask you a question. Yes. Let me ask you a question. Yes. When a blind man knocks you down, are you angry with him? I, may, I might be angry in the moment before I recognize that. I might are you be, angry uh, at angry the blind man for knocking you down? Once I realize he's blind, no. Why not? I will What's assume that he did not do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Because he can't see, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Can't see. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. so now you're now you're you're uh, uh, you're on the uh, pavement because he just knocked you down, and you look Got at him, it. and he's not reacting to the shock on your face. Do you think that he's insensitive? Right. No. No, because he's blind, right? So yeah. every every human being is blind. Yes. In certain kinds of situations, we are all blind. Yes. And so uh, what what Gandhi learned was that uh, he became very angry about yes. uh, uh, the uh, the enslavement uh, of of the Indian people by uh, the, the British Empire. But he, yes. instead of acting on that anger, he saw power in that anger. Okay, and he also recognized the highest principle of all of yoga is ahimsa, non-injury, non-harming. Every single relationship that we have is with ourself. Even though we have different bodies, we have different minds, we have different personalities, and we have different habit patterns. The body, the mind, the personality, and the habit patterns are all subject to change, death, decay, and decomposition. So those are only relative truths. And yet the consciousness that is within me, that is within you, that is within the President of the United States, is all one. So every relationship is with myself. So as long as you base your outer actions on your inner wisdom, you are being an activist. You are serving the truth. And you recognize that uh, some people that you're going to uh, have relationships with are are going to be handicapped in certain ways, that in that situation you are not. You know, we're sort of tempoplegics. We become temporarily paralyzed based on our handicap in certain kinds of situations. In other situations, we're not handicapped. But in, in some situations, we get handicapped. Uh, and so in dealing with these folks... In dealing with all of life and all relationship, we're asked to transform this anger into 
an energy that can serve our inner wisdom. Because anger is not bad, it's just, it's just energy. Fear is not bad, it's just energy. Greed is not bad, it's just energy. And if I can sacrifice my anger, my fear, my selfish desires, I can transform it. Because I know that ice can be transformed into water, water can be transformed into gas. Same with anger, fear, and greed. So if I use these yogic principles to transform this destructive and contractive and debilitating energy that I have access to from my own unconscious mind, I can transform it into a creative, positive energy that can have tremendous social benefits. But the trap is to be attached to the outcome. It's all a process. It's all a process. So I remember back in the 1960s going to uh, going to uh, uh, anti-war movements, marches on Washington back in the 60s, and you know some of the people were very violent. Well, how was that violence any different than the violence in Vietnam? You see, so. We have a responsibility to recognize that with anger, with fear, with selfish desire, that's just our creative energy. And we have the potential as human beings to transform it into something that's positive, that can positively influence the consciousness of others. I remember when I was a kid that smoking cigarettes was very popular. You could smoke a cigarette in a public building. You could you could smoke a cigarette in, in an enclosed space like an airplane or in a restaurant. None of that takes place anymore. Consciousness has changed. And so, yes, it takes some time, but, you know, time doesn't exist. The important thing is, are we true to ourselves in the moment, in every relationship? And that's what meditation helps us to do without injuring ourselves, without poisoning our body when, when we give our attention to anger. It only mm-hmm. hurts me. It doesn't hurt uh, anybody else. Mm-hmm. How perfect to say that all of those emotions are energies, that we needn't be attached to those emotions, but nonetheless allow them to flow and maybe inspire, and maybe some of those emotions are our gurus, in the moment, even anger. And to what degree is preya, P-R-E-Y-A, the the preya of fear, the prayer of anger, um, because we attach to the feelings and make them realities as opposed to transitory experiences that may or may not have lessons to teach us. And then what are some ways that you recommend people don't become victims to their own emotions but inspired and led by them, as well as not being victims of others and uh, what others would have imposed upon us for their gain. Well, my experience is that when you change your perspective, you change your experience. We're all going to have relationships with uh, anger. We're all going to have relationships with fear. We're all going to have relationships with selfish desires. That's part of the texture of being a human being. And... uh, for most people, 
they are on these powerful forces is from a very limited perspective of an individual. I am an individual. I'm an individual mind-body-sense complex, and I want something, so I desire it. I think it's going to make me happy. I think it's going to make me happy. I want the car. I want the car. I want the car. So I get the car, and my desire is fulfilled, and, gee, I'm as high as a kite. <laughs> then what? Then i got to drive to the uh, to the uh, uh, the local uh, uh, shopping mall because I have to pick up a couple of items. <clears throat> and I'm feeling great because, uh, you know, I just got this car, and I thought it was going to make me happy, and sure enough, it's making me happy. But as I get closer and closer to the... Uh, the parking lot of the shopping mall, I have to make a decision. Where am I going to park? And all of a sudden, that happiness changes immediately into fear. Mm. I become afraid that I'm going to lose what I have. I just got this new car. It's making me feel like a million bucks. Now i got to park it in this parking lot with all these other people and all these other cars. I'm afraid I might lose what I have. I'm afraid somebody's going to scratch my car. So where do you think I park? You've seen these people. They park all the way at the far end, the corner of the parking lot, and they park on an angle. They might take two or three spots up to diminish the possibility that somebody is going to ding their car because they're afraid they might lose what they have. And and what if what if a desire is thwarted? It's blocked, not being fulfilled. What then? Oh, well, then uh, that burns to anger. And so when we, when our perspective on life is from this individual perspective, we have a problem. We have a problem because there's no intuitive wisdom from a higher perspective. Einstein says that a problem cannot be solved on the level at which it arises. It has to be solved on a higher level. And that is the hero's journey. The hero's journey starts when, when we, we get a call. If we accept the call... We're asked to uh, make a journey from the comfortability of our own habits into the dark, dense forest. If we find an opening, we can't take it. It represents someone else's path. We have to cut our way in. And when we get in, then we're going to find all of these dangerous, uh, powerful dragons like fear and anger and selfish desires that we have to do battle with. But if our intention is pure, then help will come from all sorts of areas and and all sorts of people that we never even imagined would help us. And we will be successful. And when we receive that elixir, that holy grail, so to speak, then we're obligated to go back home, back into the constellation of relationships and and become the light of the world. So is it fair to conclude that for an activist, the best place to start is in the subtle, the place where the battle is is won and started in the spirit and that soul, and then at the end of that, then it becomes time to re-engage in the physical world, or is that too simple? You're engaging in the material world every day, thousands and thousands of times. All that yoga is asking you to do is to base your your thoughts, your words, and your actions on your own inner wisdom. Just just 
you know, uh, you know, Shakespeare again, above all else, to thine own self be true. Be an activist. That's fine. If that's your dharma, be an activist. But remember two things. Remember that every thought, every word, every act is to have the good housekeeping seal of approval of your own conscience. That's number one. And number two is recognize that the highest principle of all of yoga is ahimsa, non-injury, non-harming, non-violence. Do no harm. Be a prophet of love amidst amidst a world of handicapped individuals. And do no harm to others and self. I love the way you discuss that in your book. Do yeah. no harm to others and yourself. So well, now because there's the only one. There's only one. There is no other. There is, you know, it's it's like numbers. When we were mm-hmm. kids, we we remember in first grade, second grade, we learned all these numbers: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's only one number. There is no number three. There is no number five. Number three is just a concept that indicates that one. Five is just a concept that indicates that one has appeared five times. Every relationship is with ourself. That's why if we think, speak, or act in an injurious way toward what my brain and senses define as somebody other than me, that injury is going to come back upon me. If I give selflessly to what I consider as someone other than me because of the limitation of my brain and senses, that gift that I give somewhere in space and time is going to be given to me. Mm. So be an activist, but recognize these laws that exist in the world and in the universe. Let's talk about the reverse side of this, and that is those who are in the midst of being, I don't know if it's a dharma, the dharma I'm going to say, maybe erroneously so, of a victim, of a martyr, of a person in pain, a person crippled and blind. So I clumped a whole lot of diversity there, but individuals who live their lives as if they must be the underdog and look to be rescued from outside sources or don't even know that rescue is needed because they feel that life is just misery and suffering. And so therefore everything becomes this dark and you know drastic awfulness. Can you speak to that experience or those ways of living life? I had a brother-in-law once who had lower back pain Mm -hmm. and I was very compassionate to his condition because I had lower back pain when I was a young person. It just Mm -hmm. so happened that my lower back was where I I, uh, deposited my fear. And so uh, mm-hmm. my back became very contracted, and uh, it was it, it was problematic. It was painful in many kinds of situations. And uh, through meditation and gentle yoga, I don't have it anymore. So I said to uh, mm-hmm. this man, who at the time was my brother-in-law, I said, "Look, uh, you don't have an operable condition, and I didn't have an operable condition, but we have, uh, you know, fairly similar uh, situations." I said. I could teach you some meditation. I could teach you some gentle yoga that might help. What do you think? Are you open to that? And you know what his response was, Carol? He said to me, no. if, I didn't, if I didn't have the pain in my back, how would I know who I was? 
Wow. Yeah. So if you change your perspective, you'll change your experience. Our concepts skew our perceptions. And if we become attached to the pain and we define ourselves by the pain, by this victim mentality, uh, then, then the key is going to look for the lock, and the lock is going to look for the key. But if, if you begin to practice meditation and yoga and you earnestly ask yourself the question, who am I? From where have I come? Why am I here? What's to be done? And where will I go when the body dies? Then we can slowly, slowly change our perspective from one of attachment to one of compassion. And in that compassion, the individual becomes open to an infinite number of possibilities. Maybe I'm not the victim. If I can build a bridge where I base my outer action on my inner wisdom, slowly, slowly, in, in easy, no-brainer type of situations, I will, I will create a, a brilliance of confidence and an imperishable comfort. And there's no longer the need for me to hold on to this victim identity. I do feel the, the, the division between those who have come to the realization that there's solutions and there's more out there and that they can strive and evolve. And those that are so blind, as you used that metaphor earlier, that mm-hmm. they can't even see that yoga exists. They can't even see uh, that the solution exists. They can't even have the thought, the contemplation that, why do I need this suffering? Because even that's a step toward consciousness. Just to ask that question, why do I need this? Or what does this benefit? Or what's the source? Or can I find solution? All of those statements are a step toward consciousness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. How, how do we as one stir and help those that are blind that don't even know they're blind? They're walking around, knocking people down, hurting people, causing problems. They don't know. How do you help that type of that part of our oneness awaken? Well, if we have a relation with somebody like that, then there's an action that's called for that we can draw upon from our own inner wisdom and in some fashion be of service to provide love to that person without any expectation of reward. It's you know it's like being Johnny Appleseed. Our job is to uh, go about the uh, the landscape, uh, planting uh, seeds of love in people's consciousness. When it sprouts, it's not up to us. But nothing that is done is ever lost. Nothing that is received is ever lost. So when they're ready to uh, uh, begin the process of waking up, they will. And we have to be okay with that. You know, God, whatever that means to uh, people, uh, is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, regardless of what uh, religious persuasion people follow. And God, in God's perfection, must experience the infinite number of possibilities. 
that's one of the working definitions of what God or the supreme reality is. God must experience the infinite number of possibilities. Now, you're talking about perfection here. God is perfection. How can perfection experience the infinite number of possibilities? So God willingly, in order to experience the infinite number of possibilities, willingly takes on ignorance in the form of fear and anger and selfish desires, believing, being deluded into believing that I am a separate individual in a vast universe of objects and relationships that I must control, that I must manipulate, that I must obliterate in order for me to have happiness, health, and security. But at a certain point in that evolutionary process where desires become hollow, you know, it's sort of like the Doppler effect. It's coming, 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 or going, going, going. It's, it's never here very long, even if desires are fulfilled. You know, you drive out to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, the mall and, and you're afraid somebody's going to scratch your car. So, so the more that you uh, uh, begin this process, uh, the, the deeper that you grow, knowing that you just have to give what you can give. And other people will begin that involutionary process the same as you have of going within, seeking within, and finding within at the, at the appropriate time. You can't push people into that. Everybody has to experience what they have to experience. Everybody is trying the best they can, I believe. Everybody is trying the best that they can, even the President of the United States, you see. <laughs> but everybody's got different limitations. Everybody's got different limitations. Everybody is living in a separate universe, a unique universe. Yeah. <laughs> got to have compassion for people oh. in that situation. The, the 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 way the places we could go with this conversation are unending, Leonard Perlmutter. We are discussing the heart and science of yoga, a book written by Leonard Perlmutter and Janice Cortez Perlmutter. Janice cannot be with us; she's busy being an artist, and Leonard is here, enlightening us as our guru for this hour. And uh, Leonard, this book is amazing. I I sit down and I read every book of every author I interview. And I dash through it as fast as I can. I have to say the writing is easy, it's smooth. I can read it quickly and gain so much. But I find such incredible delectables on every single page that I pause and I meditate. And that takes a long time going through a book. (laughs) But the fruit of it is amazing. I love your book. I love every page being so rich and and viable. So, so many places that we could go. And, and listeners, please do avail yourself of this opportunity to attain this book. Again, the book is The Heart and Science of Yoga. And as we enter our last moments together, Leonard, sad as I am to say that, I wanted to go the route of a brain entrainment and neuroscience and how we are with Norman Adoige and a lot of other researchers that are written popularly about the power of the mind over body and the brain to harness, almost tell the brain 
when it is to feel pain and not, when the body is to feel pain or not. And pain is only one of many examples. And I think that this so beautifully dovetails with much of what you write in your book. And I want to, as a way of introducing the conversation and the topic for you to discuss, quote from your book, Chapter 32, nothing is more important than being able to choose the way we think. Our feelings, aspirations, and desires, and the way we view our world and ourselves. Mastery of the mind means that we can begin to reshape our life and character, rebuild relationships, thrive in the stress of daily living, and become the kind of person we really want to be. And that's Eknaf Azwaran. I hope I said that correctly. So now, what would you like to say about the powers we have to harness ourselves into a wonderful way of living. Well, in my experience, Carol, the the greatest power that we have lies in our thoughts. We already know from that uh, simple uh, yoga experience that I can't even raise my hand without first entertaining a thought. And actions lead to consequences. What that means to me is that our thoughts are our richest resource. And yet, every thought that comes into our awareness, which is energy, is only a suggestion. It's not an imperial command. Every thought is only a suggestion. It's not a command. And if we can build this philosophical, scientific bridge in our lives so that we can base our thoughts, and then our words and our actions on our own inner wisdom as reflected by our conscience, the Buddha, we will always be led for our highest and greatest good. So if the conscience, if the Buddha says that a particular thought will lead us for our highest and greatest good, then serve it in mind, action, and speech. And yet, if the inner wisdom of our conscience, the Buddha, says that this particular thought is not to be given attention to, well, then sacrifice it and have it transformed into usable energy, willpower, and creativity that you can use at another point in space and time. It's all about learning to become ecologists, conservationists, with our creative energy. It comes in all different forms, all different forms. We have to know how to dance with it. We have to know how to dance with the anger. We have to know how to dance with the fear. We have to learn how to dance with our selfish desires when they conflict with inner wisdom so that we can transform their inherent power into something that we can use and benefit from. Can you exit this with a type of meditation that we can take away, whether it's the uh, sat, chit, and anana, if I'm saying that correctly, or something that transports us into keeping good company with the right and good thoughts and emotions? Sure. You know, uh, uh, a 60-second meditation is a tonic any time of day or night. And and if you don't have 60 seconds or say you're in a business meeting, you don't even have to draw attention to yourself. You don't even have to close your eyes. Just bring your attention to the nostrils where the nostrils meet the 
upper lip, that bridge of the two nostrils, and attend to each inhalation and attend to each exhalation. If you have time for 60 seconds, sit down quietly in a straight-back chair with your thumb and index fingers joined, palms flat on the thighs, eyes gently closed, mouth gently closed, teeth barely touching, and just attend to the inhalation at the bridge between the two nostrils and then the exhalation and give your full attention for 60 seconds. And if an uninvited thought or image or sound comes into your awareness, it's not a problem. It's just the habit of the mind. Honor and witness any competing thought, image, or sound. Offer it back to the origin from which it came. It all comes from the same one. And then bring the mind back to the breath at the bridge between the two nostrils. Be aware of the inhalation. Be aware of the exhalation. Now, you're not doing anything. You're just observing the inhalation and observing the exhalation, just like you might be observing a bird in flight looking through the kitchen window. 60 seconds is all it takes to calm the mind, to make the mind even. And that's a beautiful place. Oh, that's place. beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. And now, Leonard Perlmutter, I'm quite sure that people at the end of this will want to know how to contact you, what courses they can take from you, what conferences they can attend. How do they find out all that information? Well, thank you, Carol. Uh, that uh, information is available uh, through the American Meditation Institute uh, that we began back in 1996. The website is AmericanMeditation.org. We're a nonprofit organization, AmericanMeditation.org. And uh, the book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, uh, is available there. That's the uh, American Meditation Institute's empowering self-care program for a happy, healthy, joyful life. We had, we do have courses. We have online courses in real time. People, in fact, tonight uh, we have a class on yoga psychology. Uh, that's a study of the uh, the perennial psychology of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and a wonderful class, people in real time all over the world. In fact, we have people in India that wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, to to join us uh, live. Uh, we also have a video, an online video, uh, uh, which is, runs five and a half hours in, in small little snippets of 10 and 15 minute uh, uh, little uh, uh, chapters. And uh, that uh, is a video interpretation of the book, The Heart and Science of Yoga. So there's lots going on for physicians. We have an annual uh, physician conference. Uh, we've been very fortunate that the curriculum of this book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, has been certified by the American Medical Association for Physicians oh. and the American Nurses oh, Association for Nurses. So, you know, you talk about being an activist. There are things that are changing because because of activism, you know, you just show up in the intersection and be of service to inner wisdom, and and people do respond. Not everybody, Voila. but people do respond. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful website. I've been combing through it throughout this time of learning who you are. And, folks, I just do encourage you all, move into the next evolution of your consciousness, whatever that means for you today and every moment. 
and one of the takeaways I have from your beautiful book is that the mantra that you hold, love your mantra, walk with it moment by moment. It's another way of being in touch. I would ask you more about what that means to to have your mantra moment by moment and to love it. But readers, listeners, you'll find that out in his book, The Heart and Science of the Yoga. Thank you so much for joining us, Leonard. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been a rich and wonderful time. Thank you, Leonard. Thank you, Carol, very much.